Welcome to Your Business, Your Life with Matt DeFrancesco, your personal financial technician. Whether you've had years of success in your business or just starting out, Highlift Financial can help you create a vision for your business, life, and family, and align these for generational wealth. As they say, what happens in your life affects your business. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Your Business, Your Life with your host, me, Matt DeFrancesco. Hey, just got back from a leadership conference in Las Vegas that my coach was running and just got some really great information. I'm hoping in one of the upcoming podcasts, I can share some of the information that I learned out there. But today, I'm, I've got a really great guest. His name's Jacob Tilzer. I think I got close enough on that. So it's Jacob Tilzer. He's the founder of Kaizen Collision Center. It's a 50-location MSO, which really prides itself on high quality customer service. And it's funny because as we were talking earlier, when we were kind of doing the intro call, he said, that's really an overused term. So I'm kind of interested to uh, pick his brain on this idea of uh, superior customer service. They provide a scale of a larger shop, but with the feel of a smaller shop, which I think is really important these days because, you know, I think as businesses get bigger, sometimes they get very uh, impersonalized. So having this feel allows him to provide their customers with a personalized experience. He offers things like shuttle services, uh, daily updates to the uh, customers uh, on whether the repair is going. And those are just a few things. So I'm hoping he's going to highlight some of those. But so Jacob, like I said, is he's experienced a high level of success at a young age. So I'm excited for him to tell his story and explain uh, exactly what they do. So uh, Jacob, welcome to your business, your life. Hey, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, I don't think we have enough time to, to tell the whole story, but we can definitely touch on it. I think at a high level, I'm an open book for you. So whatever questions you might have, it's kind of what people know me for is pr- probably pretty blunt and, and, and upfront. So whatever you ask, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the background, uh, kind of what I've got, but, um, yeah, we're sitting close to 50 locations today, which doesn't mean anything special other than we've just got a lot of work to do. So yes. going, going from one location, we really, uh, focused on getting super efficient and then expanding outward and then acquiring other operations and and trying to bring the whole platform fluid. And uh, some days it feels like whack-a-mole, you know, (laughs) you you get things dialed over here in this one state and then, you know, something pops off in another state. So it's quite the juggling act at times. Um, I can imagine, especially when you got uh, Gultam in multiple states. How many states are you in now, Jacob? Uh, we are in uh, six states now, about to enter our seventh state with uh, next month. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, and I'm sure that's exciting, but it can uh, have its logistical challenges too. So, yeah, well, I was going to say uh, logistically, part of our growth thesis was to kind of stay this Midwestern stronghold. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't initially go from like Arizona over to Florida. So, you know, we went from Arizona a couple hours over to California and then, you know, for where we were in Arizona, we just kind of expanded a few hours around and then initially, you know, getting to where we got to, I wanted us to be pretty border connected. Um, That theory is changing a little bit now with some stuff we've got coming down the pipeline. Okay. But yeah, our, our initial company thesis was to stay somewhat geographically close. So we weren't dealing with it. Also the element of, you know, logistics and trying to coordinate all that. 
Of course, of course. So so before we get into a lot of that stuff, I wanted you to kind of highlight because I explained in the uh, intro, you know, you've had a high level of success in your young guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see. Can you tell the audience a little about how you got into the industry and how it kind of evolved to where you are now? Uh, sure. So if I go back to my my first earlier days, I, I grew up at the drag strip. So uh, the family I had grown up with, we were around drag racing. So I was always... Uh, not necessarily a gearhead, but I knew cars, right? Mm-hmm. I knew what an engine block was. I, I knew a little bit about tuning. And again, the family I had grown up with had been in business as well. So I kind of got a hybrid at a very young age of both. Getting into the collision side, that wasn't my initial path. So mm-hmm. I had gone to uh, school and I had finished up high school fairly early. Prior to high school, I had had quite a few high school credits. So my uh, junior year of high school, I had a lot of free time. You know, I had really only gone into class for about an hour because <laughs> it was, I was pretty far ahead. So I joined a vocational school uh, for automotive to fulfill the, the second half of my day. And then I had worked two jobs at night after that. So I'd go to school for an hour or two hours, whatever the course was. And then I went to vocational school for automotive uh, I think until probably about two. And then I worked a job from three to about 536. And then another one from about 630 till about midnight. So oh, that was wow. that was my life, uh, junior and senior years of high school. So uh, that was that was my introduction, I guess, formally to working in the career field of auto. Mm-hmm. I was going to go down the dealership path, but you know, like most guys, we, we ended up in a body shop and, and uh body shop will use all the resources you can give it. So right. Right. Is that exactly. I had done an internship while I was at the vocational school with uh, a local dealership and I tried it out and just wasn't really liking the the feel. And I ended up starting sweeping, sweeping floors in a body shop. Okay. And that was, that was, that was how it started. Isn't that amazing? I think that's the thing that amazes me in, in the collision business. There's so many guys that started that way, just sweeping floors and just kind of working their way up. So, yeah. you know, you mentioned, and, and this was something that was interesting. I didn't put this in, in my notes, in my uh, outline, but um, so your name, this uh, Kaizen yeah. Collision Center, and you mentioned that it's a, it's a combination of Japanese terms. So how did you, how did this come about? Um, and so if I go back to my first introduction to it, I was more intro- introduced to the lean process more than Kaizen. I had worked for a, a company in Arizona that I think at the time they were one of the innovators in the industry of going from, you know, your traditional body shop, mm-hmm. you know, stuff everywhere, sparks flying, uh-huh. you know, nine different cars on one parts rack no real process to, I mean, came in in one weekend, I mean, from floor tape and paint to just, I mean, completely wiped the whole shop out. And they were, they were very successful at it. It was very new to us, but at a time in my career, it was, um, it was pretty instrumental because I got to see both faces of the industry. Okay. And diving more into lean, I had always kept lean close to my heart and kind of how I grew, but when you study lean principles or you look for lean visual indicators, you'll always see Kaizen pop up somewhere. 
So, uh, you know, Kaizen was a theory, is a Japanese theory to continuously improve uh, on a daily basis. And, and in theory, you know, a bunch of small changes end up leading to a really big change. Mm-hmm. And if you're making changes for the better, uh, you end up with a really good product. Yeah. So uh, when I got the company going, I had done some research and I didn't see anybody was was using the name. And I said, you know what? I think that'll give us an outlier right. because I had seen it connected to so many things in the business it's been kind of cool because we've been able to create almost a synonymous feel with Kaizen and actually our group versus what it used to used to be known for in the business. So, um, but you know, people that know what it means find it pretty cool. So well, that's pretty neat. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know if the average consumer would know, but I'm sure it got within the industry. It's probably it. It, it could be something that's appealing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So tell me, so you started sweeping floors and then just basically worked yourself up to the shop and ended up buying it. Is that how the, the we kind of evolved? No. Well, no. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I was always a growth minded guy. Yeah. I've always continued to grow from the earliest stage. I had worked for a company out in Arizona who I still remember it to this day, the owner I was always an ask for opportunity instead of ask for raises, like show me what more I can produce and, right. and, and I'll do it and prove my value to you. And, uh, I remember I had gone to this shop owner and, uh, he said, uh, Hey, you know, I think I have a skill set that's being underutilized. You know, I was, a, you know, I have a pretty extensive background in mechanical. Uh, I went to school for mechanics and, uh, I'm looking to see if I can offer anything else. And, you know, at the time I was a detailer reporter slash shop cleanup guy. And, and I'll never forget. He told me, he said, uh, you know, people in my company, they don't move up. You know, I hire people, I plug them in a hole and that's where they stay and they either stay there or they go out. And, you know, needless to say, this guy has since sold his business. (laughs) So after I had heard that, um, I, I've never been one to let people restrict kind of, you know, a scenario that I'm in or, or whatever it was that I was trying to achieve. And I went and applied at a, another facility and landed a good job there. And just, I went from one shop to another where I was always able to max out my skill set and ability. And as long as I was learning, uh, I felt good about it. I ended up with a company that, you know, for as young as I was at the time, uh, it was probably 2021, 20, okay. you know, he said, Hey, if you'd take this opportunity and you'd go move over here, you pretty much run the show. Mm-hmm. And I was always more of a leader. So, uh, wasn't intimidated by the idea and just went and took on the challenge. Right. And taking on that challenge, I ended up in a rural market that the shop I ended up at was failing miserably. Spent some years there, turning it around, applying a bunch of lean principles, getting the culture right with the staff. And, and um, after, you know, nothing I would, I would say in collision ever goes on autopilot. But when I kind of felt that, hey, I'm in a rural market, we've got the building maxed out, it's producing the most it can, customers are happy. The culture's good. I was feeling a little bit, you know, like I was also being held back. So I had left that company and ended up back in the Valley and I, I was getting calls from vendors and, and, and other people in the town where, where, uh, I was working mm-hmm. and half the staff that was working for me at the shop said, Hey, if, if you go, we're going to go. And I said, well, I'm going two and a half hours the other way. So, oh wow. <laughs> and, and most of them did end up coming with me. Wow. And that was kind of where I realized, 
you know, if, if, if you're driving culture, you know, people will follow you anywhere. And, uh, I didn't have to ask anybody to, and next thing I know, I ended up trying this thing on the side, not knowing if it was going to work or not. I actually kept my job for about six months. Cause right out of the gate, I started with employees and right. being in business young, you know, I was able to understand that, you know, if you're constantly the one that's working in the business and making it, making it work, you know, it's a pretty risky business. Cause right. as, as I used to tell people in the early days, you know, if I get hit by a bus, you know, what are you going to do tomorrow? You got to be able to think for yourself, you know, right. You're not always going to make the right decisions or ones that I agree with, but at least you're going to make a decision and we can either applaud it or coach off of it. So mm-hmm. ended up back in that town. Uh, like I said, I kept that job for about six months and it just started going gangbusters. And I finally, had enough wind to put in my notice and go all in. And ironically, the last shop that I worked in, I ended up taking that building over and it's now a Kaizen location. So it's actually (laughs) kind of went full circle, pretty crazy, but yeah. And then went back to Yuma, went all in pure customer acquisition. I didn't go to one carrier and say, Hey, I've, I've got this thing. Like, you know, can, can you send me a bunch of customers? I mean, one of the things that I noticed working for a couple of the larger companies in the industry is customers weren't really treated as if their business mattered. Um, it was, I get eight a day from this insurance company. I'm going to get eight today. I'm going to get five tomorrow. I'm going to get four the next day, three and two. So right, it was almost taken for granted. And I watched a lot of like customer experience related items get stepped over quite a bit and um, putting my head down in this town and just really going to work. I mean, it was one great conversation that led to another that ended up, you know, circulating to some people that were able to make the right decisions. Believe it or not, our first contract wasn't a, uh, wasn't an insurance contract. It was a contract with the government and kind of going that restriction and regulation, you know, it was, it was just a really good gig for us in the beginning. Isn't that interesting? You talked about this. We were talking about this idea of superior customer service, and you were just like, that's an overused term. And, and, I, and I wanted you to really kind of highlight on that because I think too many times we do throw this thing. It is like a buzzword, like, but what does it mean? And I don't think anybody really knows what it means. And so I would kind of wonder for a Kaizen, what does that actually mean? Or, yeah. or how do you want to execute this? Yeah. I got I to gotta probably be a little bit careful here because um, I'm even going through a current evolution in my own company, right? Because we're getting much bigger and, and to get the message out and to move the needle at a macro level, it's, okay. it's a much harder thing to do when, when you're sorting through, you know, a thousand people. So for me, um, I had always, and I had said this years and years ago, but, you know, customer service and it's, it's evolved now so much that customer service isn't something you give. It's, it's expected now, right? It's, yeah. it's it's expected to be a part of the experience, but that was what I would tell people, Hey, you got to focus on the experience because if we're just focusing on good customer service, that's what every other company's focusing on. Right. You you know, you can fix a car and and give great customer service. That doesn't mean the experience was great, you know? So probably realizing more that, you know, everybody's human and, and trying to put a personable way to 
connect with somebody, you know, not here, drop off your keys, sign this form, you know, we'll fix your car. We'll call you with a couple updates. You pick up, you know, very transactional versus asking how the kids are doing or, you know, the dog was in the car during the accidents, the dog doing, but I mean, just little things like that, that just kind of focus on the things that people remember, you know, transactional things are, are something we go through every single day. But if you can find a way to make a small impact on the experience, I'll never forget you. Oh yeah. And, and, and somebody can have a bad experience, but you have the ability to potentially turn that around. I can tell you some of our worst experiences where we've completely failed, you know, through being genuine and not so boilerplate and, and just being personable with people, people understand that we're human right? And we're going to make mistakes. That's how we acquire 99% of all of our customers. Somebody on one end of the stick made a really bad mistake. Right, right. You know, they've turned around to be some of our best long-term customers because it's not always about when it's going good, right? It's about what happens when it doesn't go right and how you react and and the things you do. Right. And, And I think that's what solidifies a lifelong customer. Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting. I, there was, a, I remember reading an article one time, they talked about medical malpractice suits and they said they actually did a study and they found out that, that the docs that got sued, it had nothing to do with their competency and everything to do by their bedside manner. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that speaks to what you're saying. I mean, cause stuff's going to go wrong. I mean, you tear, you know, you give them an estimate, you tear apart a vehicle. All of a sudden we found things internally, you know, that, that have to be done. I think even just the fact that maybe sometimes the insurance companies are saying, here's what we want done, but you're like, well, this is maybe the right thing. We've got to navigate these things. And I think doing those little things, like you said, can make a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. You got to make it somewhat memorable uh, on the good side. and, and And that's what they'll remember you for. You know, that one little thing where maybe you remembered the daughter's name or you remembered they were dropping their car off before they went on a trip and just asking them how it went when they come in. You know, it's it's when you can connect with somebody more, it becomes less transactional and almost less about the repair. Most people aren't car repair experts. They most of the time don't want to hear all about it either. They just want their life back to normal. That not that the biggest thing? And so, and I know one thing I, and looking on your website, you give, uh, you give regular updates to like text updates, I assume yeah. to, the, to the customer. Yeah. I would say that's probably more boilerplate. If I'm being honest, we always, you know, through the systems and the tools that we have, we, we, we try, but you know, with the administrative burden pressures, there are nowadays in collision repair, I would say our number one complaint comes from that one phone call that was missed or that one last update that, that didn't make it. And the guy knew it, you know, that feeling when you're, when you get, when you get home at night and you're like, I know I forgot something, but it's just not clicking right now. And right you know, the next day you're like, Oh, I forgot to call Miss Jones or whatever it was. Our people are busy, you know? So we definitely try to do our best within the given landscape for sure. I think that's, yeah, that's a key thing. I I had one client of mine, I had taken my, I forget what happened, but I had to take my car for repair. And, um, I got the car back and the next day he calls me and he says, Hey, you know, how was your repair and everything? And I'm like, great. And we got chatting and I'm like, um, I said, you know, I, I figured because he was a client of mine, he was just checking in. He goes, no, no. He goes, I do this on every repair. 
he, the owner was calling, just make sure everything was okay. Anything that we, you know, any problems, anything that we can do differently in the future. And I thought that was very proactive on his part. So um, I, I think anytime with the little things that we can do can make a huge difference. Definitely. So I agree with that. So you've expanded your 50 locations, but I, I'm getting a sense that like, if you're looking at expanding to a new location, there's certain qualities within that shop that you may be looking for. Um, is that true? And if so, what would those be? Yeah, I've always, everybody that has known me, I've always been much more of a selective, you know, I know what I want type mentality. You have a, you, you have a business, right? And you try to line a lot of those core competencies and practices up with each other. So, and we've stepped out of those, you know, initial boundaries, but we've got the bulk of, you know, things we look for. And I wouldn't say it's too untraditionally different than most companies that are looking to grow. Some of them might not, you know, know that that's their buy box or some of them, you know, the, the industry with how much money circulating around right now, looking for a home, yeah, I personally feel a lot of the money that's in this business right away wants to see an income statement, wants to see net earnings, and then wants us to start negotiating on a purchase price. And that's just, I, I mean, we don't have a current capital restriction, so it doesn't really matter. The purchase price at the moment, we have what, you know, what we want to pay, but, you know, I try to make sure that we're lining the correct culture because growth and acquisition is hard. And yeah. anybody that wants to paint this picture for you online or release all these articles that, oh, you know, we just opened up another store and it's great and it's beautiful. They didn't tell you that 10 people quit, you know, the week <laughs> they came in. They didn't tell you that, you know, right. <laughs> uh, they don't tell you the bad about it. And I'm not saying we have a lot of people quit. Well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty prideful that we, we end up retaining a lot of people, but it's it's more for us. Our thesis has just been slightly different because I came from a pure customer acquisition, just taking care of the customer, earning good referrals through different channels uh, and not taking it for granted. I've, I've kind of held that close to our thesis. And I typically will look at a company and go, okay, they have, you know, X amount of people, how involved is the owner? How uninvolved is the owner? You know, how do they feel about him? Because part of the thing with acquisition is the former owner, whether they're staying on with us or not, has to convey the message to his people that this is what he's chosen to do. And if he doesn't have a good ship behind him or people that believe in him or have had a high level of respect for him, again, it's going to go back to transactional, right? Like, all right, well, if you're out, I'm out. I got no reason to stay. But when some people feel they're connected to the the legacy of what's being handed on, we try not to change a ton of things in that viewpoint of, of we want to change the feel in here with the group. You right. know, there's always this burden feel of, hey, the suits have just gotten here and the black Tahoes are arrived and these guys are coming in with their briefcases. And now, now we're big corporate owned. I mean, I'm a white t-shirt wearing so unorthodox. Like, let's just talk about cars. Let's figure out the pain points together. We're humans. You can throw stuff at me. You know, we've built a lot of process, uh, you know, for where we're at, but we're still in the people business, right? So making it feel transactional is very off-putting to some people. Um, and then also for some people, they just don't want to work in that environment, regardless if it's, if it's good or good process or, or not, they just, 
they want to work for a small independent, you know, and that, and that's okay too. At least the sooner you can get to what people actually want personally, you can help see if it aligns with you professionally. Right. Right. And I, and I think this idea of culture is huge. I, I, it's, it's yeah. so funny because it keeps coming up on all the guests that I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I'm finding even with the clients that I'm working with is that, you know, the, the greater and deeper that we can develop a culture, the more the first off you develop loyalty, but I think that then spills out into the customer experience. It's just, it becomes a mindset. Well, I mean, developing the culture, right? Every company's got a culture. It's just what culture does the company, you know, practice. We've always practiced. I saw this on the side of a a shipping truck, you know, a little freight liner. I can't remember the name of the company, but I wanted to patent it. Big letters on the side. It said, um, big enough to serve, small enough to care. And, and, um, that's always something I've, I've held dear to me, right? Because I want people to know that, Hey, we're still small enough in mindset where we're going to, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fail. Right. But we're also big enough to serve to where we can afford to buy the equipment. We can afford to, you know, staff a couple extra people if needed to, to relieve some, some pressure on some people, but, you know, not lose that smaller feel that people enjoy working for. And when you start getting of scale to, to manage the two is is quite an art form because, Even if I want to tell somebody we're a small company still, you know, they go, uh, well, we heard you guys are somewhere around 50 locations. Sometimes that image just, you know, isn't there for people anymore, but I'm still here. I'm still the guy. And every person that I've hired and put in our, I would say our executive leadership chair, embrace that as a, as a core philosophy and foundation. Right. I don't know if you read the book, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willett. Yeah, I, I I hadn't I hadn't read it, but I know a lot of Jocko's work. Um, yeah, I, I've had a uh, I've had a a whirlwind of a time with books lately. I've been trying to get dialed back into them, just from a standpoint of I had read some around two hundred some books right. in a two three year window, wow. and all around business and personal development and growth. And yeah. I tell you what, man, every book that I've opened the last two years in that same category, I've gotten a couple different ones, a couple good ones, but there's, it's a lot of the same regurgitated messages. I mean, you got to go back to some of the founding books, like think and grow rich or how to win friends and influence people. If you just, if you just take a couple of those books from the early days, right they all say the same message. They lead to the same thing, right? There's some deviations of it, but I mean, there's so much that, that, you know, crosses over into each other. Oh yeah. But it's, it's actually funny. My, my son, he was a uh, graduate with a biomedical engineering degree and he was doing procurement, which is supply chains. And and eventually he wants to start his own company. And I said, well, you know, and he hated his job in procurement. So I said, you know, your next job needs to build on your skill set." And I said, you know, you really need to look at sales and marketing. So he gets this book, this red book. I don't, I've never even heard of it before, but you know, how to sell, you know, and he's not learning anything out of it. So I give him the book, uh, how I raised myself from failure to success through selling by Frank Betcher, which was written like 1934. And, you know, like the first chapter is to, 
be enthusiastic, act enthusiastic. I mean, it's just simple yeah. little principles. But yeah, I think you're right about that. I brought up Jocko's book because, you know, he talks a lot about and in in how the Navy SEALs do a bottom up leadership. So it's yeah. the, the top leader has all the accountability and it's extreme ownership is just it always comes back to you. But how then they yeah. push down the leadership so that it filters the top. And I would I would think it's from what you're explaining about how your organization works, I think kind of indirectly you apply that type of principle. That's right. I mean, we obviously have our our leadership, but I do believe that it doesn't matter. It's going to trickle down to the ground floor. And I do believe that it always flows to the top, even if an organization wants to stop it at middle management or blame it on this one department, still the department that the CEO uh, has to lead, right? So uh, I've always been a big believer in that. So Okay. And, and sometimes that's tough when things aren't going the best, right? Because extreme ownership, right? You got to own it in the good days and the bad days. Everybody wants to have the great days. But when the bad days pop up, uh, as a CEO, you can't go hide in the office and just shut the door and shut your phone off. It doesn't work like that. So Exactly. Exactly. And it's, and it's about leading our people. It's about leading our customers. It's about leading our family. So, you know, um, I think the more accountability that we can take, the better off we are. So, but letting people know it's okay to, to fail and make mistakes. I had sent an email probably six months ago to my staff. I I had one executive that was being really hard on a, on a manager Mm. for failing in a couple areas. And it was shortly after we had done a, an acquisition of this location. And I had just kind of reaffirmed to them that, hey, uh, the fact that they're failing right now sooner is a better thing. We, we do want people to fail as fast as possible. So it shows what we need to work on. So it shows where the flaws are in our process. Right. And if through accountability, we've been able to expose issues sooner than later, that actually means things are working better. It's better to figure it out sooner than go six months down the road and find out that, you know, things are being hidden from you, or this guy was too afraid of the corporate culture yeah. to voice what the issues were or to raise concerns. Right. Yeah. So we have a very vocal organization that we promote. We want to know from the bottom up what we can do to get better. We can't right. always deliver on it immediately, but we do want people to have their voices heard. Right. And you, and you know what? You'll never know what you learn from somebody else, especially boots on the ground. They're yep. going to have the best feel. We were talking about culture and just uh, how you develop that and this idea of the bottom up. Is there anything specific within, um, I mean, is there any specific things maybe within these shops that you're looking to acquire that um, you look from a cultural standpoint that would make it a good fit? I mean, I'm looking more, we kind of talked some generalities. I wanted to see if there's anything specific. So just as we were talking, right? Right. Top down, bottom up. Right you can get a real sense of the people that you're acquiring, you know, based on some of the character of the owner, right. You know, through the diligence process, you learn a lot about people and, you know, sometimes you have to ask tough questions and, you know, you, you see all kinds of faces of people and, and typically my, my favorite kind of guy is just that super open, honest, genuine guy. And that's why his people are supporting him, you know, and those are going to be the ones that support the transaction and the transition and, and, you know, versus a high turnover door and, and, you know, everybody knows the guy to be out for everybody or yeah, you know, culture, just making sure they took care of their people, you know, being a guy that 
I still have my first five employees working for the company still, you that's know, amazing. and that's some of them are moved around at different shops, but you know, I, I really, I really pride myself on, on that part. So some of this growth has been like tough for me personally, because right. some of it's transactional. Some, you know, I'm never going to always be able to be that guy for everybody, but I am trying to be a good leader and show people that I do care. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit harder to get the message out to such a large group of people, but hopefully through podcasts and 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 these type of things, maybe maybe that helps push the message throughout That's the company. The, you know, yeah, yeah, and I think I think it does help. And I think um, again, if you're pushing it down, even from the areas that you can uh, control, that it's all going to filter down. I think it's just keeping that messaging consistent the whole way around. So, you know, Jacob, I'll tell you what, we could go on. <laughs> I mean, but I love talking culture. I love talking leadership, all that stuff. Maybe you know, I'd love that. Maybe have you on again and we can dive deeper into this, uh, into this idea too. If you're yeah, absolutely. So sounds good. So to get a, to, for people to find you, where should that we'll put, put this all in the show notes, but if you just want to kind of give a little plug where they can find you guys. Yeah. I'm always open by email. Uh, it's my first initial last name at Kaizen collision center.com J Tilzer T I L Z E R at Kaizen collision center.com. doesn't matter what it's about. I'm always open for a conversation or an email. Yeah. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Okay. I throw my number out, but at, at this, yeah. at this, uh, it's in my email. So <laughs> and that's probably the best. Yeah. That's probably the best way to do it. So just yeah. the email and you can also go to uh, your, your website, Kaizen Collision. Yep. And I do read every email that comes through our website, believe okay. it or not. That's another way I've been able to keep a pulse on my business. There's a, you can email directly in and I've never gotten rid of that mailbox or assigned it to somebody else. So an email that comes through the website where it's a lead, a complaint, an application, it, it, it's part of my f- daily fulfillment. So I, I'm, I'm the one that reads them and distributes them if necessary. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So, and again, we'll have all this in the show notes. So you don't have to worry about writing this down if you're driving yeah, no, to this. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> so no problem. So thank you, uh, Jacob. I, I, I just love talking with you. And I know we could just go on and on about this stuff. Um, sure. But I uh, appreciate you having you on. And the last thanks goes out to you, the listening audience. Thank you for listening to Your Business, Your Life with me, Matt Francesco. Uh, if you've not subscribed to the podcast, please click on the subscribe button below. That way, when a new episode comes out, it'll download download directly to your device. And also, if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to any of the podcast channels and you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. That way we can start to get these great guests out to uh, more people. You know, with that, again, I want to say thanks for listening. And from everyone here at High Lift Financial, make it your best day every day. And we'll see you guys again real soon. So take care and God bless. Hey, I really want to thank you for listening to the Your Business, Your Life podcast. If you want to be notified when new episodes become available, click the subscribe button below. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of High Lift Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment, legal, or tax advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified professional with any questions you may have regarding your business or personal planning. DeFrancesco Financial Concierge, LLC, DBA, High Lift Financial, is a registered investment advisor. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state security authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.